This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. And I think for years, people have focused on the hydrocarbons um, because they're there in such great abundance. But because they are hydrocarbons, they're not water-soluble. They, they really don't want to be in solution. And they're, they tend not to be flavor-important for most beers. This week on the show, a couple of papers from the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly by Scott LaFontaine and Tom Shellhammer that help us navigate the complexities of hop aroma and make better beer. Tom, those who've been with us since the very beginning will remember you and Dan Vollmer on the very first episode challenging the conventional wisdom that using hops with higher oil content for dry hopping would result in increased aroma. Remind us how you came to that conclusion. Yeah, so it's it's sort of intuitive to think that uh, if hop aroma comes from hop oil, which it does, then having hops with higher hop aroma or higher oil should have higher aroma. And so this project that Dan Volmer and I worked on a number of years back uh, was trying to probe that very question. And what we discovered, kind of to our surprise, um, was that hop oil in and of itself is not a really good predictor of hop aroma intensity and the caveat is that this is within a particular variety and the varieties we looked at when we did this study were cascade centennial and chinook and we really have the most data on the cascade so a a sample of cascade that's high in total oil might not necessarily be predictive uh, of it being high in aroma intensity relative to a counterpart which was lower in oil and so the next question is then well if it's not total oil then what is it and um you know start digging what's in the oil and are are there components in the oil that tend to be more flavor potent or flavor important than total oil itself and and there was and this is work that scott lafontaine did for his doctoral work a big portion of it among other other projects that scott worked on and um i'll let scott tell more about that but the, the general sort of analogy is that when you look at the total resin content in hops and if you're trying to use that as a predictor for bitterness we know that the alpha acids are really the 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 things to focus on they're the precursors to iso alpha acids which are the main driver of bitterness and so looking at total resin content 
would not necessarily be totally predictive of bitterness because you have these other things that don't necessarily contribute to bitterness. And so I think we're, we were uncovering the same sort of phenomena with oil that you could almost think of there's components in the oil that could be considered filler or just less flavor important than others. Um, and we could use that as a predictive tool around the aromatic performance of hops. Let's talk about the components of hop oil that influence aroma in beer. There's sort of three categories here, right? So there's the hydrocarbons, which is um, and sesquiterpenes, which would be like myrcene um, and alpha-humulene are kind of some poster childs there. Um, and then you have the oxygenated compounds, which would be like, uh, again, some poster childs are linalool and geraniol. And then some... Um, kind of newer age compounds uh, that people are looking at are these sulfur-containing compounds, which would be um, like 4-MNP would be uh, the indicator or 3-MHA. And what's interesting about these is that um, hops in themselves are described, uh, like when you do a rub, um, 70% of that oil is coming from the hydrocarbon fraction, so myrcene and uh, alpha-humulene, and these are woody er and kind of herbal notes. Um, and then uh, kind of when you look at kettle hop aroma, uh, linalool has been kind of the target uh, oxygenated compound that people have been looking at as the driver. And so a lot of um, uh, prior work has pointed to linalool as being an important compound. Um, and what we found in our, in our work is actually another um, compound, geraniol, actually uh, explained a lot of the variation within the dry hop flavor that we were looking at with Cascade. Um, so this fraction um, is pretty important uh, in terms of a driver, driver of aroma intensity. And then when you start looking at the sulfur-containing compounds, these are fairly difficult uh, to look at analytically because they're in such low concentrations and there are only a handful of labs that can measure them. Um, so we're starting to uncover and peel back the onion of, of the importance of these compounds. Um, and in our studies, we, we've uh, shown a couple of interesting things with them as well. Just one thing to, to mention, and we, we often discuss this when we're talking about these findings, is that like this compound geraniol that seemed to be an important predictor of aroma potential in Cascade, in and of itself, is not the sole descriptor of cascade hop aroma uh, cascade hop aroma in beer is much more complicated than just one compound but in terms of using some sort of indicator within hops that might give you a sense of whether this sample of hops is going to be high or low uh, uh, it's called potency in terms of its aromatic punch geraniol does a better job than total oil content in terms of that sort of prediction Terpenes, which is that first group that we mentioned, uh, makes up a huge percentage of hop oil, but aren't believed to be contributors to dry hop aroma. Why is that? So it, this this really comes down to the like uh, the way the molecule is structured. Um, in in it's kind of complex because in these newer style New England IPAs. Um, as as you see at the at the end of this um, publication, as you change the matrix, um, these these molecules may be important. But in uh, filtered beer, where there's not much um, hydrophobic or lipophobic material in in solution, um, 
these these the way that these uh, compounds are are structured makes it such that they're not very soluble in in solution, um, and they're going to want to be on yeast cells or um, on stay within the plant matter um, or uh, leaving on CO two during fermentation. So um, you can kind of think about it that they they really don't want to be um, at the party in, in terms of being in solution, um, and so because of their properties that they're not really the main drivers whereas if you're going to just take hops and do a rub um because they make such a large proportion of that oil um you're pre- they're pretty gun they're, they're going to be primarily predominantly um like in your face during that rub um so they, they're probably more of a driver of hops themselves than that the dry hop aroma that you're going to find in beer. But we do think that terpenes are important for kettle hop additions, right? Yeah. So um, during those kettle hop additions, what can happen is that these, these, these compounds can oxidize and then they become more soluble or they, they start to become, um, uh, the, their structure changes so that they oxygenate and then they become um, like the sesquiterpene oxides. Uh, they're, they're the components that... Um, or have been found by other uh, scientists to lead to these spicy notes that you're finding. So that's kind of what, what's going on there is that they're changing structure uh, during that boiling process and then becoming more important. I think that just repeating what Scott was saying, the, the hydrocarbon fraction, when you are analyzing total oil, you find it in greatest abundance. And so it's, it's, it's hard not to miss it. And I think for years, people have focused on the hydrocarbons um, because they're there in such great abundance. But because they are hydrocarbons, they're not water-soluble. They, they really don't want to be in solution. And they're, they tend not to be flavor-important for most beers. As Scott points out, beers like a, a New England-style IPA where you've just essentially overloaded the system with hops, you can actually find them in suspension, but they're not truly solubilized. You already brought up linalool which was the first hop volatile measured above its threshold. Talk about why dry hopping doesn't seem to move the linalool needle, whereas both wort boiling and hop storage do. As Scott pointed out, linalool for quite a while was kind of a standout hop component that people focused on for hoppy aroma. And and the work that, um, that sort of... Um, exposed that was done in kettle hopped beers, um, principally kettle hop um, German beers. Although that's, I mean, it's an oversimplification, and and I think it's an important compound from kettle hopping, um, as are some of the other oxygenated compounds like um, like geraniol and nerol. But in um, in dry hop beers, um, we're seeing. There are two things going on. One, there's there's much lower heat and hence lower volatilization of the hop components. And two, there's much higher amounts of hop material being added to, to beer than there would be in a kettle hop addition. And so we start seeing other um, hop components becoming important in terms of uh, both non-volatile like bitterness and volatile contributions in terms of flavor how about storage do you want to talk about that at all um how that's how that's how that's affecting linalool 
No. Okay. Fair <laughs> no. That's a good answer. I like I that say, answer. I don't don't have enough. Um, we haven't done enough work in that area. This TQ paper has a really cool diagram that illustrates the complexity of biotransformation. And I like how you've included detection thresholds for many of these compounds, as well as references to the studies that uncovered the various reactions. Take a few minutes to drive us around figure three. So, um, like I said before, uh, geraniol seemed to be the marker for Cascade. Um, and like I said, it only described 50% of the variation, but it was doing a far better dra- uh, um, job at that, uh, uh, describing the aroma potential of Cascade than uh, uh, total essential oil, which really only described 30% of the variation that we were seeing between our different cultivars. And so when you, when you start to look at geraniol, um, there's uh, a number of different things that are feeding or changing the concentration or could change the concentration depending on the type of um, uh, um, dry hopping parameters that you're using within your system. And so uh, King uh, et al. was kind of the first to show that um, these biotransformations can happen. Um, and that yeast has an ability to affect the geraniol concentration. And what I find really interesting is that as you start to change the geraniol concentration, um, you're, you're starting to change the detection threshold as well as the, uh, the, the type of aroma quality that you're getting from the compound. And so if we just look at the King study, and this would be going north within the figure, uh, they, they saw that... Um, yeast can isomerize geraniol into beta-citronellol. And so it would be going from a kind of a, a rosy note to more of a, a citrus-based note. Um, and then further, uh, it could be esterified um, into uh, citronella acetate. Um, and so you can see that that's one pathway. Um, but the geraniol concentration can also be fed uh, by um, uh, glucosides. And a number of people have talked about this, uh, but there, there have been studies that have been done in our lab by uh, Dr. Sharp, as well as um, in Sonia Collins' lab that showed that the proportion that glycosides are actually attributing to beer is rather small. So that might be um, kind of a smaller input. That's something that this chart doesn't show is like, where is the most important thing? Um, uh, and then um, the plant itself. Uh, and this is kind of the uh, lower part of the graph, um, going to geraniol and then uh, methyldranate can um, affect the uh, geraniol concentration within the plant, uh, plant or with, um, within the plant, the geraniol concentration can change as well. So um, this would be varietal differences. And so knowing which variety you want to dry hop with uh, is pretty important if geraniol is um, an uh, indicator of flavor. Your article suggests a strategy for maximizing hop aroma potential by reserving geraniol-rich hops and geraniol precursor-dominant hops for different applications. Talk about that. Yeah, so this was a strategy that um, uh, um, a scientist in Japan, uh, Dr. Takoi, was recommending, and it kind of fell in line with what we were seeing in Cascade, that the higher free uh, geraniol cascade 
was attributing uh, more intense aroma to beer. And when you start to look at the different uh, um, varieties and compare their geranial concentrations, which was what Takoy's work was doing, he kind of lumped um, two, he had two classes, geranial rich and geranial precursor. And the geranial rich hops, um, because there's the, more of that free volatile there, uh, they probably lend themselves more to uh, dry hopping um, because of the fact that there's more extractable geranial there. Now, um, just something to note is that uh, our studies were done, um, we kind of made uh, beer teas. And so we were dry hopping a based unhopped beer uh, that had no yeast in it. Um, and that might be different than a, a number of uh, uh, commercial breweries that may be dry hopping, dry hopping on yeast. And so um, geranial itself became important on our study. But if you were dry hopping on yeast, you could see that probably, uh, and th this was in uh, Tokoy's work, uh, they, he dry hops uh, mostly on yeast. You're going to see that beta-citronella beta is more important because you're going to get that bio-transformation. Uh, and so just an important note, when you're looking at these studies, you need to consider how the researchers are performing their work um, so that you can make an apples-to-apples -apples comparison and that so that you have an idea of how it relates to the system that you're working in at your brewery. I think that's a, an important point to make here. Um, sorry for the aside. but. Um, what we found is that if you use uh, uh, geranial um, free, you get more extractable geranial and uh, the aroma goes up. But if you had uh, to use the uh, geranial precursor hops, you can maybe use them more upstream within the process. Uh, and then fermentation and yeast could act on those precursors and release uh, the flavor compounds that you're looking for. So maybe use those geranial precursor hops more upstream in the process and whirlpool additions or petal hop additions. Scott, you mentioned earlier that there have been some limitations studying that last group of the three volatile fractions of hop oil that we mentioned at the beginning. Talk about those challenges and let's hear what we're learning about thiols. The, the challenge here is that you have, um, you're trying to find the top of the pinhead in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And so uh, what, what we have now is um, we're kind of, uh, you might have had these compounds might have been having an effect for a very long time, but technologically um, and from a methodology standpoint, we might not have had the instrumentation to actually really look at these chemicals um, reproducibly uh, and um, uh, or had the, the instrument with the sensitivity to look for these compounds. But now what you see um, is that instrumentation is catching up to um, uh, what we're seeing uh, and what might be affecting flavor. And we have a number of labs that are coming out with really great studies on thiols. Um, and uh, what we're starting to see is similar to the, the terpenes is that you do have these uh, free volatiles and um, uh, a bound portion. And uh, a lot of this work is really being driven by the wine industry, and uh, we're kind of using what they're finding in the wine industry and seeing how that is um, uh, being how hops are similar and might be different. Um, and so, uh, 
the way um, there's three uh, files um, that are uh, kind of jump out as important. Um, two are produced by HOTS, uh, 4MMP uh, and 3MH, uh, which uh, 4MMP is um, uh, 4-Macapto, 4-Methyl, 4-Pentane, uh, 2-Own, and uh, 3-Macapto, Hexanol. And then the 3-Macapto, Hexanol um, uh, can be converted um, to the acetate, which is the 3-MHA during fermentation or um, dry hopping on yeast to 3-MHA. So the 3-MHA is actually, um, a number of studies have shown that that's kind of more of a yeast-derived flavor. But those are the three poster trials, the 4-MMP, the 3-MHA, um, and the 3-MH. And the 4-MMP and the 3-MH are being produced by the hop, and the 3-MHA is, is more of a, a yeast-derived um, compound. And, and to give you some perspective from like a, an odor detection threshold, the terpenes, so this use linalool, geraniol, have odor detection thresholds in the high uh, parts per billion or low um, parts per million, let's say like uh, 100 parts per billion, while the thiols typically have aroma detection thresholds in the parts per trillion, like single parts per trillion. So... And you're several orders of magnitude away in terms of potency. That is, that the thiols are much, much more potent. So even though they're there in hops in really, really small amounts, they are much more flavor active, you know, uh, thousands of times more flavor active than the terpenes and, and, and even greater than the, the hydrocarbons. That's interesting. Thanks for pointing that out. And just like, and just like uh, the free uh, geraniol and free precursor, another researcher, um, uh, Orly Roland uh, showed that there was thiol precursor rich hops and th- um, and free thiol rich or free thiol rich hops. So like Sats, um, Halotel, um, Perlet, and Calypso would be like the high precursor hops. And again, you might want to use those uh, more upstream in the process, Whirlpool or dry hopping additions, and or uh, Whirlpool or kettle hop additions. Um, Whereas the free style versions or varieties like Bravo, Citra, um, Simcoe, you might want to use uh, as dry hopping. Um, and those particular, yeah, those varieties that the last handful that Scott talked about, um, when people smell those or smell beers made with those, you're smelling those characteristic thiols, um, which are gooseberry, lychee, um, some people refer to it as caddy. Um, tropical, sweaty kind of aromas. So they're, they're, they're fairly distinctive in beers that are made with a lot, lots of mosaic or Simcoe or Citra um, tend to have these, these type of thiol. I mean, they're not really a stink, but they're, you know, they're, they're a tropical, um, almost animal quality to them, which is, could be polarizing. I mean, it's, some people love them, some people don't. Coming up. So what we found is that as you picked up Cascade later, it was higher in free thiols um, and lower in precursors. Uh, or uh, on the flip side, if you picked it earlier, it would be higher in precursors and lower in free thiols. 
I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by... Bring the world to your brew house with BSG's diverse selection of ingredients and services. Our dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need every step of the way. Make BSG your supplier of choice with products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. Visit us at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. And thanks also to... Malt Europe Malting Company is a leading supplier of craft malt across North America. As a farmer-owned company, Malt Europe has carefully crafted quality malt from locally grown barley for decades. The result? A portfolio of base, specialty, and distiller's malts that exceed the exacting standards of craft brewers. Learn more and buy online at malteuropemaltingco.com. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District New England meets at Northwoods Brewing October 11th. District Philly goes to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair October 12th. New Hampshire Brewfest 2019 is October 12th in Portsmouth. District Pittsburgh meets October 15th. District Michigan meets at Arbor Brewing October 17th. District St. Louis meets October 17th. And the brand new District Georgia is holding its first annual pig roast October 19th at Monday Night Brewing in Atlanta. District Mid-Atlantic meets October 19th at Union Craft Brewing in Baltimore. Registration is now open for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference in Calgary. Be sure to tack on a couple of extra days to enjoy some amazing hiking and make the 45-minute trip to Banff, which is one of the most picturesque places on the planet. Immediately following the conference is the world-famous Master Brewers two-week brewing and malting science course in Madison, Wisconsin. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Thiols can easily be oxidized. Does that mean they might not play as big a role in hop aroma after all as as they could? I think with the challenge with hop chemistry is that it's fairly complex and you've got a whole bunch of different compounds interacting with each other. I think hop oxidation um, definitely has an impact on hop aroma intensity. Uh, And we're talking about hop oxidation during storage. Um, Certainly beer oxidation post hopping as post-production has an even bigger uh, impact on hoppy flavor. That is hops that are aged. If they're, if they're stored properly, 
hops that are aged um, you know, six months, a year and, and stored cold are not going to be that aromatically different. But beer, even if beer is stored cold but is exposed to oxygen during dry hopping or during um, filtration or packaging, we see a pretty dramatic loss in um, the hoppiness. And I would suspect that that is a combination of thiol oxidation as well as um, some transformation of, of the terpene fraction. Has anybody measured that? We haven't measured it. Um, okay, well, so there's a study that Brad Barnett carried out in, in our lab two years ago looking at changes in hoppiness in a dry hopped beer as a result of dissolved oxygen levels at the time of packaging. And what we found is that oxygen certainly had a big impact um, in terms of hop aroma decay, um, but temperature and time had an even bigger uh, effect. And, and in general, the, the beers that we were looking at would go from being bright, uh, floral, fruity, hoppy, and move into this sort of caramelly fruit cake kind of uh, uh, flavor. And um, while oxidation that is the dissolved oxygen levels at packaging certainly um resulted in differences in, in speed with with that with with which that occurred when they're stored cold when they were stored warm it was just like a, a dramatic shift um that was that swamped out the the, the oxidation component so the take-home message is that that hoppy beers just don't age terribly well Talk about the work you did comparing different lots of Cascade and Centennial from the same harvest. Uh, this study, what we were doing um, was looking over multiple harvest years at uh, a number of different lots of Cascade. Uh, and I think over the study, um, we looked at like, um, I think, 70 different lots of Cascade or, or maybe the same lot ha- occurred uh, uh, over the three years that we were looking at, at this project, but a significant number of different lots of um, the commercially available Cascade. And what we would do um, is sort of make hop teas in an unhopped based pale ale. Uh, that, that pale ale had been uh, isohopped so that we could look at um, interactions or if an interaction would happen with, um, let's say, isohop acid. We had some um, in there as um, to account for some of those differences or microbial stability as well. And what we would do is we would have um, panelists rate the overall aroma intensity increase um, um, across those different uh, kind of beer hop teas. And uh, what we'd also do is then uh, extract the essential oil and then um, characterize that oil into the different chem- chemical classes. And what we found. Um, as, as I've mentioned, uh, is that uh, for Cascade, geraniol seemed to explain uh, 50% of the variation um, within our data set. And that means that as the, um, as the intensity was increasing across the different treatments, geraniol seemed to be a, a pretty good indicator of uh, that aroma intensity increase, more so than essential oil, which really didn't um, explain much of their uh, variation within that, that, that sensory only 30%. And so you've got an increase in the explanation power by just using geraniol uh, for Cascade. 
What was interesting is that uh, for uh, Centennial, that marker seemed to be beta pinene, although it explained uh, only about 40% uh, of the variation within the data set uh, as compared to essential oil, which I think for um, Centennial was more around 25%. So what's interesting about beta pinene is that uh, because it's a hydrocarbon, it's probably not the driver of um, Centennial's flavor, but it might be um, a marker of what actually is driving Centennial's sla- uh, flavor, if that, if that makes sense. And um, Centennial is uh, interesting from a beta pinene standpoint because it's one of the only varieties that uh, has that biosynthetic pathway. So it's, it's high in beta pinene. And maybe uh, that because it's high in that, um, uh, um, it has that biosynthetic pathway, maybe it's producing something else that we're not measuring. Because uh, over our study, we were only looking at 15 uh, volatiles, uh, which um, the essential oil is made up of hundreds of, of compounds. So we could have been missing something there. You also wrote about the non-volatile fraction and some unintended consequences of dry hopping. What's going on there? Yeah, so um, while I was working on my, uh, kind of on the Roma side, uh, there was another uh, graduate um, student in the program, Christina Hahn, um, who was working on uh, sort of describing the, 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 the dry hop uh, bitterness, that, or the bitterness that you're getting picked up with um, dry hopping. And this is kind of um, in, uh, in um, Tom's lab, there's kind of like this, uh, this history, right? So um, Christina was taking after an, another student. And so we were trying to figure out what, what were the drivers of um, uh, this dry hop beer bitterness. And um, it seemed like uh, after looking at 120 different commercially available uh, craft beers, most, I would say, 70% of those were uh, hoppy or hop forward, that humulinones and iso-alpha acids are really the main primary drivers of bitterness in those beers. And so with humulinones, essentially, uh, it's an oxidation product in hops. And so alpha acids are oxidizing. Uh, into humulinones. And those humulinones, if they're in hops, they're uh, 90% extractable into beer. And so they're going to be driving beer flavor. And so thinking about this in the brewery, one uh, um, suggestion that I've been thinking about on how to like kind of mitigate this is as a craft brewer, you might want to buy your hops based upon your recipe or or design your recipes uh, based upon purchasable quantities of hops. So that you don't just open a bag of hops and leave them sitting there. Maybe uh, uh, open the bag and use the whole bag um, so that you're not having this, uh, this, this bitterness pickup would be a possible strategy. But considering that bitterness pickup um, is important. And you could also dial down your kettle hop additions, knowing that you're going to get this bitterness boost from the cumulonotes. So thinking that there's more coming in than just aroma, I think is important. And now that we kind of know what the drivers are, you can start to measure that as well. There's a frightening possibility related to manganese extraction during dry hopping. Talk about that. Yeah, uh, this, this is uh, kind of complex, though. So um, thinking about it, 
And this is really this non-volatile uh, um, component is really, I think, driven by the amount, the sheer amount of hops that people are putting into beer now. Because um, as you increase this hopping rate, um, uh, uh, another student that I was working with, uh, Dean Hauser, found that thirty-four uh, percent, um, uh, or uh, that hops are thirty-four percent extractable solids, and so that is a only a portion of that is essential oil, and then the other portion is all these other things, right? Like the humulinones, the uh, these metals, um, alpha acids. And when we're thinking about the metals, uh, these mag manganese is being extracted. Um, so a paper by Banforth showed that it can be uh, extracted at high rates. And then um, another presentation that was was done, I think, at last year's um, annual ASBC meeting in um, San Diego, uh, Reyes, uh, um, who works for... Uh, um, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company observed that 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 metal composition can change based upon where you are getting your hops from, and so thinking about that, uh, potentially certain um, growing regions or these these metal ion concentrations could lead to uh, um, uh, a greater staling effect, and that might dictate how you want to use these hops. And, and this is just kind of uh, theoretical right now. Nobody's shown this, but uh, you, you might want to use hops high in that manganese more upstream in the, in the brewing process. So again, use them in the whirlpool or uh, during kettle hopping, and then yeast could assimilate that, that metal or, or use it as nutrients. Um, but to complicate that, um, uh, uh, another study done by Weechstock found that um, uh, alpha acids can actually sequester um, some of these, these metals, so iron um, or copper, which are really the but like kind of um, the main primary drivers of that oxidative uh, formation. There's a uh, paragraph in there talking about water-soluble aroma precursors um, being important when hops are added in the presence of yeast. Um, do you want to unpack that a little bit more? So um, this is this is kind of going back to that that bound versus free uh, discussion. Okay. And so the the bound the bound precursors are um, kind of the those uh, glucosides or the bound uh, file that would be. Uh, it's sort of, I don't think we know exactly the, the, the biochemistry yet, but what's happening in grapes is that it's this um, fatty acid uh, degradation pathway. And so the um, thiols are, are coming out um, attached to both cysteine and glutathione. And um, different yeast strains have different abilities uh, to um, or different enzymatic packages that may uh, cleave those precursors uh, from um, or, or uh, cleave the volatile from those precursors. And so thinking back, right, variety uh, has an impact on precursor. Um, so you have varieties that produce uh, high levels of free compounds and varieties that produce uh, high levels of precursors. 
And so as a brewer, that's a choice you can make. Um, you have the varietal um, choice. But also what, what we found um, in a study that I, I did with uh, Haas and Scott Barnum um, at Haas, um, who is um, one of their growers, is that in, in our, our kind of all the Cascades we were looking at, he was, over the three years that um, I was working on this project, he would pick hops at, at five different time points over those harvests. And what we found is that within Cascade, and we were only looking at one variety here, is that Cascade had the ability to regulate um, the free thiol concentration and precursor concentration. So what we found is that as you picked Cascade later, it was higher in free thiols um, and lower in precursors. Uh, or uh, on the flip side, if you picked it earlier, it would be higher in precursors and lower in free thiols. So kind of thinking about that and like the challenges in the industry right now is that you really only have a month to get the hops out of the yard, right? And so um, I think growers uh, are kind of constrained um, because they have their time limited. And so my, my thought is here is that if you really can use this precursor concentration as a uh, driver of when you should use hops throughout the brewing process, you can maybe uh, uh, use it as a like when to pick, if that makes sense. Yeah. It does. I'm not sure if we captured it and all that, but you're you're basically suggesting that those late harvest uh, those late harvested hops would be preferable for dry hopping, whereas the early ones would be preferable for kettle hopping, right? Yeah, and so uh, we weren't just looking at the uh, like the file the the chemistry here. We were also dry hopping these um, in in our uh, unhopped base ale. What we found is that as you dry hopped um, with these later harvested hops, aroma intensity was uh, increasing. The quality of that uh, um, of, of that aroma was also changing, and so it was becoming more citrusy uh, as you dry hopped with the, the later hops, whereas the um, earlier hops were more herbal in character um, and less uh, had less aromatic punch. And Again, um, we're kind of relating or correlating here, um, so it's not exact causation. But what we found is that as you, uh, as, as you were using those later hops, uh, they were higher in geraniol, higher in free precursors or free thiols. And so, again, um, the thought is that, is that there's more extractable um, uh, volatiles that are actually important for dry, dry hop flavor. They're more water, water, water soluble volatiles that are being uh, that are there. And again, this is something that is not going to show up when a brewer goes out to hop selection and is trying to pick between different lots. You're not going to see that by rubbing and sniffing, right? I, I think the challenge with the rub and sniff is that you have to know exactly what those water soluble compounds smell like, right? Because 60% of, when, of what you do the rub is made up of myrcene, or 60 to 70%, right? So unless you're very in tune to uh, the particular aroma qualities of these water-soluble volatiles, um, you might not know what you're looking for, right? Uh, and I think that's a challenge uh, with uh, the, the evaluation process. Um, but that's not to say that you couldn't train yourself to uh, the types of aroma qualities that might actually be driving 
this this dry hop beer flavor. And I think, um, you know, uh, w- without analytical instrumentation or even knowing what uh, uh, these these aroma compounds are, right? Because the science is kind of chasing brewers right now. Um, uh, brewers have found these these volatiles, which is I find really interesting. And and so you do have a or or, or growers in that matter as well. So people. Uh, with sensitive palates, have been able to find these very unique aroma profiles, and I find that fascinating. That was Scott LaFontaine and Tom Shellhammer here on the Master Brewers podcast. We only scratched the surface today. Go download the peer-reviewed papers from the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly and take your hoppy beers to the next level. Direct links are in the show notes, or you can always find over 50 years of archive technical quarterlies from the Publications tab at mbaa.com. We're taking this show on the road. I'll be talking yeast with Graham Stewart, dry hopping with Tom Shellhammer, kvike yeast with Richard Priest, oxygen ingress on small canning lines with Brooke Bell, diastaticus detection with Matt Linsky, and so much more. Master Brewers Live is a brand new addition to the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. So grab your passport, get registered at mbaa.com, and join us in the Master Brewers Live studio October 31st and November 1st in Calgary. Check out the brand new Master Brewers Podcast website. You'll find guest profiles, information about upcoming live events, and more, all at masterbrewerspodcast.com. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, and Malt Europe. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. (laughs) 